1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou in thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 24. And we trust that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular today to the very first words that Elijah uses to address all Israel when they were gathered together on Mount Carmel. He puts before them a question, a searching question, when he asks them, How long halt ye between two opinions? How long halt ye between two opinions? When David fought the giant Goliath, it was one against one, even though Goliath stood nearly ten feet tall and was fully armored and had an armor-bearer in front of him and was a seasoned warrior, while David was but a boy equipped with a sling and five stones that he took out of the brook. Now in 1 Kings chapter 18, another contest is about to ensue, and the odds would seem to be in favor of the prophets of Baal, just as you would expect that Goliath would have been highly favored uh, to the carnal eye to have prevailed against a little shepherd boy. It's one against 850, or so it would seem at the outset. Elijah cites, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the grove. Prophets of the grove are generally believed to be the prophets of the goddess Asherah. In fact, that's what that word is in Hebrew, 
Asherah. Asherah was supposedly the consort of Baal. And it's interesting to note, based on the later verses in the narration, that these 400 prophets of the grove appear to be no-shows when the contest took place between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They must not have had a good feeling about being summoned to appear before Elijah. Or perhaps they reasoned if 450 prophets of Baal were not adequate to deal with the situation, what could they possibly contribute? At any rate, we have no record of their being there. There is something in the narrative also that's not really specifically addressed, but it isn't hard to picture, and that's how long this would have taken. How long do you suppose it would have taken to assemble all Israel with the prophets of Baal? I can't help but think that it would have taken days or weeks just to send out the summons far and wide, and it would have taken additional time beyond that for the summoned assembly to gather. Imagine the growing suspense that would have gripped their minds as the Israelites made their way to Mount Carmel. A.W. Pink tries to capture the scene when he writes, Let us endeavor to picture the scene. It is early morning. From all sides, the eager crowds are making their way towards this spot, which from remotest times has been associated with worship. No work is being done anywhere. A single thought possesses the minds of young and old alike as they respond to their king's summons to gather together for this mighty concourse. Behold the many thousands of Israel occupying every foot of vantage ground from which they could obtain a view of the proceedings. Were they to witness a miracle? Was an end now to be put to their sufferings? Was the long hoped for rain about to fall? A hush descends upon the multitude as they hear the tread of marshaled men conspicuous with sun symbols flashing on their turbaned heads, sure of court favor, and insolently defiant came the 450 prophets of Baal. Then through the crowds is carried the party of the king, on the shoulders of his guard of honor, surrounded by his officers of state. Something like that must have been the scene presented on this auspicious occasion. Elijah speaks first and issues his searching challenge. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Halting between two opinions. I'm afraid it's a common practice and one that Christians have to deal with and overcome even in this present day. So James writes in his epistle, chapter 1 and verse 8, that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What would a double-minded man be but a man who is halting between opinions? 
Later in his epistle, James sternly exhorts those that are double-minded. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. David himself, the man after God's own heart, felt the burden of a divided heart. So he prays in Psalm 86 and verse 11, and my how we have occasion to utilize this petition and make it our own. When he prays, verse 11, Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Unite my heart. Deliver me from a divided heart. Let me not halt between various opinions, but unite my heart to fear thy name. David's heart, one might argue, was divided between trusting the Lord and doubting the Lord. He claimed God as his refuge, but at the same time wondered why his enemies would prevail against him and why God's providences at times seemed to be uh, so foreboding and difficult. A double-mindedness is not something that we desire as Christians. It's something rather that needs to be dealt with and overcome. But if double-mindedness is a terrible condition for a Christian, what about an unbeliever? What about a man or woman who has sat under the sound of the gospel but has never come to Christ? He may not argue against the truth of Christ, but he does harbor doubts in his mind. Is it real? Is it really true? Or is it just some sort of gimmick to help people in their struggles? A religious gimmick? The opium for the masses? Karl Marx called it. How long halt ye between two opinions? Elijah wants to know. And it may very well be that God himself wants to know why his followers halt between two opinions And why do unbelievers halt between two opinions? And so I'd like to take a closer look at this phenomenon this morning of halting between two opinions. Simply put, we must deal with divided opinions or we must deal with divided hearts that halt between two opinions. And so in that connection, let's think first of all that we must deal with divided hearts or various opinions, one, by identifying the substance of these opinions. What exactly was the issue here? When Elijah asked the question of the Israelites, how long halt ye between two opinions, he immediately identified those opinions. Opinion number one, if the Lord be God, then follow him. Opinion number two, but if Baal, then follow him. And the very fact that the people answered him not a word 
shows that they were indeed halting between two opinions. The word halt in how long halchi between two opinions carries the literal idea of limping along the way a lame man does who has hurt his ankle, broke his leg, or what have you. We read of Jacob and his wrestling match with the angel of the Lord, found in Genesis 32, that the angel touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And this leads to the statement in verse 31, which reads, And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. He limped along, in other words. What a contrast, you might say, between Jacob's halting in Genesis 32 and the halting of the Israelites in 1 Kings 18. In the case of Jacob, you could say that his flesh was crippled in his pursuit of the blessing of God. In the case of the Israelites, their minds and hearts were crippled through their neglect of God. So the issue set before them by Elijah was really very simple. Let's follow the true and living God. Let's give up following after false gods. Sadly enough, we confront the same issue today, and the symptoms are largely the same. Divided opinions over who is God, which arise to a great degree because of the neglect of God. We're able in our day to break the matter down between more specifics, and it works like this. Is the Bible God's Word, or should we follow other books? What about the Book of Mormon? What about the Koran? What about the non-canonical books that Roman Catholics hold to as books of the Bible? The Apocrypha, in other words. Elijah today would say, choose you this day which book you're going to follow. If the Bible's God's word, follow that. If these other books are books of God, follow those. And there are many that name the name of Christ and call themselves Christians that will tell you that the Bible is not literally true. It's a book of stories and myths that may put before you some important lessons for life, but it's not historically true, nor is it scientifically accurate. And those who think that it is historically true and scientifically accurate are naive and superstitious. And there are men with impressive academic credentials who have earned their PhDs and are addressed as doctors that will tell you that based on their expertise, the Bible contains numerous errors. And who are we to challenge them? Have you earned your PhD? Have I earned mine? Are we even qualified to dispute with them based on their academic credentials? Thankfully, there are several men who have earned their PhDs and who are scientists and historians that can go toe-to-toe with these other so-called experts. 
But there's one expert in particular that we do well to pay close attention to, and that's Christ himself. As you read your Bibles, and especially as you read through the gospel accounts of Christ, pay very close attention to Christ's attitude and Christ's words about the Bible. Approach the gospels with this question ever in the back of your mind. What did Christ think about the Old Testament? What did Christ think about God's Word? Did he hold it to be a book that was full of historical inaccuracies? Did he hold it to be a book of myths and fables? And it won't take you long to discover that Christ himself affirms God's Word to be the very Word of God. And if Christ affirms it to be so, and it's rather interesting here to note that even liberal scholars concede that Christ affirms it to be so. It is so plain in the gospel accounts that liberal scholars won't even try to deny it. What they'll say, and it almost amounts to blasphemy, uh, one, one of two things, that Christ was merely accommodating the superstitious beliefs of the people that he addressed. So he's kind of playing along with them, even though he knew better. Or, two, and this is the one most blasphemous, that Christ did indeed think that the Bible is God's word, but Christ was wrong. There are those that will put forth one or the other of those ideas. My thought is, if Christ affirms it to be so, then so should we. Let's follow Christ in our view of the Bible. He's the best apologist. He's the, uh, the better expert among experts. He's altogether all knowing. We could devote, I'm sure, a whole study to vindicating the Bible as God's word in his course on classical apologetics, R.C. Sproul teaches his students to affirm the truth of God's word by first acknowledging the historicity of Christ, that he was indeed a real person who was born, who did grow up, who did exist. And Sproul points out that anybody who is the least bit intellectually honest will acknowledge, yes, Christ did exist. He was a real person. History vindicates his existence. He does this now without going into the issue surrounding the Bible about the supernatural events and the miracles and all of the things that bring reproach to the Bible. He begins first with Christ as a historical person. And then after affirming the historicity of Christ, he then looks at Christ's attitude toward the Bible, and he shows how Christ himself attests to the historicity of numerous Old Testament events, as well as the literal accounts of the miracles. And then he does what we all should do, which is to follow Christ in his attitude toward the Bible. How long do we halt between two opinions then? If the Bible is God's word, then read it, study it, pray over it, memorize it. 
It's that important. But if other books outside the pale of historic Orthodox Protestant Christianity are God's word, then follow them. The choice between the Bible and other books should be an obvious one. When you look at God's providence and even bringing the Bible together, it's an obvious contrast between any other book that any other false religion utilizes. But another way the issue is put before us today looks like this. If Christ be God, then follow him. (coughs) But if other religious leaders be God, then follow them. Does Muhammad claim to be God? Well, no. Muslims themselves won't go so far as to suggest that Muhammad is God. The Muslim Shahada, as it's called, which is their confession of faith, goes like this. None has the right to be worshipped but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Muslims will acknowledge that Christ, too, was a prophet of Allah, but they will not affirm his deity, and they are especially offended by the truth of the cross. And Jehovah's Witnesses will speak very glowingly about Christ. He's the most exalted being in God's creation, but that doesn't take away from the fact that he was a created being, according to them. And the Mormons, they will exalt sinful men to the same level of deity as Jesus Christ. We're all gods, just like Christ. Now we look at these varying views of Christ, and we do well to ask, how important are these issues? Is it really important that a Christian say of Christ that he is the Son of God or that he is Jehovah God? Actually, it's very important, crucially important. So we read the words of Christ himself in John chapter 8 and verse 23, where it says, And he, Christ, said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above, Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am, and you'll notice that the word he is supplied there by the translators, that is not actually in the original, uh, any word in your King James Bible, that is in italics, is supplied by the translators, So you could read it literally. If ye believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. The I am corresponding there to the I am of Exodus 3 and verse 14. Jehovah God. I am Jehovah God. And if you don't believe that with regard to Christ, Christ himself shows you how Serious it is to be misled on your understanding of who he is. Apart from that right understanding, 
ye shall die in your sins. Now, I might take a moment here just to point out that when you reach heaven's gate, it's not like St. Peter is going to hand you a theology test and you have to sit down and check off all the right answers. And there would be those that early on in their Christian experience may not be aware that Christ is Jehovah God. I don't know that I was aware of that when I was saved. However, when I was exposed to the truth of it, when once it was expounded to me from God's word, then I did affirm it. And that's the mark of a man who will um, make it to heaven based on a right view of Christ. So if Christ be God, then follow him. And indeed, he has proven himself many times over to be God, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. All the miracles he performed had as their design to vindicate his identity and his authority. I think of the words of Doubting Thomas when at last he saw the wounds in Christ's hands and in his side and fell down before him and exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Oh, and if Christ be God, then let's follow him. So we see the substance of the opinions over which the Israelites were divided. Undoubtedly, there would have been those in that crowd that day that would have believed that the Lord was God. God himself would testify to a remnant, 7,000, that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And then there were those who preferred to follow the religion of the king. They probably thought within themselves, this is a safer course to follow, so we will if Ahab and Jezebel say that Baal be God, well, that was good enough for many. They knew, after all, how Jezebel treated those that followed the Lord. I can't help but wonder if, for the most part, that crowd that gathered at Mount Carmel that day were altogether indifferent to the whole matter as to who was God. They probably didn't believe that the Lord or Baal was God. They simply lived their lives as practical atheists and went with the flow uh, in order to, uh, well, to protect themselves, I suppose. So having considered the substance of the opinions, let's consider next that if we're going to deal with divided opinions or divided hearts, we must do so, secondly, by knowing the cause behind these divided opinions. How did it come to such a contest as this on Mount Carmel? How could the Israelites ever doubt the matter of the Lord being God? Certainly such doubts can only come about when a heritage has been forsaken. And what a heritage these Israelites possessed, but had all but abandoned. 
They could trace their roots all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their lineage took them back to a period when they were slaves in Egypt, but they had seen the Lord come to their rescue with a mighty hand and a stretched out arm. Their heritage was a heritage of power. Surely they knew of the plagues that had been unleashed on the Egyptians. They would have known the story of the dividing of the Red Sea and the way the Lord protected them from the Egyptian army, which would have destroyed them. And they knew that their forefathers had heard the very voice of God from Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were given by God himself. Their heritage was one of triumph. As their ancestors conquered Canaan and saw the walls of Jericho fall flat, as well as the sun standing still in the sky until their enemies were conquered. They would have known of King David, how he defeated the giant Goliath and became God's chosen ruler over all Israel. And Solomon's temple would still be standing in their day. The temple that had been visited by the glory of God himself when it was dedicated to the Lord. But alas, the Israelites in the northern kingdom, in the northern kingdom especially, I should say, they had a heritage of idolatry and convenience when it came to their religion. So we read the tragic account of their toleration for idolatry dating back to the days of Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 26 and following we read, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi." Oh, you could say here we have a forsaken heritage and a toleration of idolatry. Actually, it's not altogether a forsaking of the heritage. You'll notice that Jeroboam suggests to them, these be thy gods who delivered you out of Egypt. So he's still, in a sense, clinging to that heritage. He's just making some adjustments along the way as to how they were to worship a forsaken heritage, a toleration of idolatry, and a love, you might say, for convenience led them to divided hearts. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Jeroboam would say to them, Today I suppose that same saying, only slightly adjusted, can be heard. It's too much for you to get up on a Sunday morning and get ready to go to church. 
You can sit on the couch instead in your pajamas with your coffee in your hand and take in your religion over the internet or over television. And where a heritage is forsaken and idolatry is tolerated and convenience becomes the order of the day, you could say further that depth of conviction just doesn't run very deep. No depth of conviction, even in the things that you do give assent to. We read from Joshua 24 earlier in the service today. Like our scene in 1 Kings 18, the Israelites are summoned before Joshua in that chapter. And after recounting all that they had experienced, Joshua calls on them in a similar fashion to Elijah to choose that day whom they were going to serve. So we read in Joshua 24, beginning in verse 16, And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people uh, through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore will we also serve the Lord Lord, for he is our God. Oh, they affirm their allegiance to God again and again, even as Joshua challenges them with the character of God and the jealousy of God and the warnings of God about judgment should God be forsaken. But with deep conviction, they affirm and reaffirm their allegiance to the Lord. Contrast their conviction with what you find in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah puts the challenge before them, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And then we go on to read, And the people answered him not a word. Isn't that a night and day contrast between what you find in Joshua 24 and 1 Kings 18? The people answered him not a word. They were dumbfounded, I suppose you could say. Their convictions about anything were so shallow that they couldn't even respond to Elijah. I wonder this morning... How deep do your convictions run? How much idolatry do we tolerate? And how much of your religion is driven by convenience? Today the challenge would look different. If Elijah were to stand in this pulpit and pose the challenge to you, it might sound something like this. If Christ be God, then follow him. But if the world be your God or your belly be your God, then follow that. Oh, what a searching challenge Elijah sets, not only before the Israelites, but before many today that profess to be Christians. So we've seen the substance of the division of opinions among the Israelites. 
We've seen something of the causes behind such variations of opinion. Let's consider finally that if we're going to deal with divided opinions or divided hearts, we must do so by the power of a prophetic voice. The power of a prophetic voice. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure this morning that everyone that's here today knows where we're headed in the story of Elijah. In the next section of the chapter, we'll see the showdown, so to speak, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah will call down fire from heaven, and the people will fall on their faces and exclaim that the Lord is God. Maybe because the readers of 1 Kings chapter 18 know what's coming, they find it easy to overlook so much of the power of the prophet leading up to that showdown. Remember now, keep this in mind as you're reading this section, how much Ahab hated Elijah. He viewed him as the troubler of Israel. He made the kings of the surrounding nations swear oaths that they weren't sheltering Elijah in their lands. Do you not find it rather incredible in the light of this that when at last Elijah and Ahab are face to face, it's Elijah that takes charge and not Ahab. It's not Ahab that commands his officers to apprehend Elijah. It's Elijah, rather, that beckons Ahab to summon all Israel, including the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove. And it's Elijah that sets up the contest between the Lord and Baal. And it's Elijah that admonishes the people to follow the true and living God. Oh, Ahab becomes such a minor character in this that we scarcely take notice of him. If ever there was a demonstration of the words of Proverbs, chapter 21 and verse 1, it could certainly be found in these verses we read from 1 Kings 18, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Elijah could call the shots, so to speak, because all that he did, he did so by the word of the Lord. He would call on God to show the Israelites that very thing, when at last it would be his turn to offer his sacrifice to the Lord. So we read further down in verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. This whole contest was designed by God. It wasn't something that Elijah invented. Not a contest that he designed. And we've seen this throughout our studies of this prophet. Everything that he did, he was directed to do so by the word of the Lord. So what's needed today in order for professors in Christ to overcome divided hearts and serve the Lord Jesus 
wholeheartedly. Oh, how we need prophetic voices coming from the pulpits of our land. A prophet, you know, was not merely someone who spoke about the future. Really, one might argue that that was only a minor part of their ministry. A prophet was one who could say with authority, Thus saith the Lord. A prophet was and is one that declares God's word in the power of the Holy Ghost. Oh, how we need such voices today. That's not something, you know, that I assume to have when I stand before you, which is why I plead with you to pray for your minister, and this is why we meet in the middle of the week to pray. Lord, this doesn't happen automatically. Please empower the preacher. May he speak with a prophetic and authoritative voice. Thus saith the Lord. A prophet is one that can preach not with cunningly devised words of men that come from the wisdom of men. No, a prophet is one who declares God's word in the power of the Holy Ghost. Calvin writes that prophecy at the present day is simply the right understanding of Scripture and the particular gift of expounding it. I would go a step further to add that Prophecy is the proclamation of God's truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit-filled proclamation of the truth of Christ will prevail to shake men out of their apathy and indifference and worldliness and divided hearts. So what about you this morning, dear believer in Christ? Are you halting between two opinions? Are you limping along in your walk with the Lord? Christ certainly deserves better from us, doesn't he? He who was wholeheartedly, wholly devoted to loving his people all the way to Calvary's cross deserves wholehearted devotion from those he came to save. And what of those of you that halt between two opinions as to whether or not you should follow Christ at all? Do you not appreciate what's at stake? Can you be indifferent to the matter of the eternal destiny of your soul? When the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa and expounded to him and the rest of that audience the truth of Christ, Agrippa responded by saying, O most thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Oh, there's a man who flat out admits that he was divided between two opinions, almost leaning one way but not quite enough. Oh my, I hope I don't have to meet up with anyone here on Judgment Day, who will turn out to be in that same condition. You sat under the gospel, you learned it, your parents taught it to you, you heard it preached, and yet you never responded. You halted between two opinions. 
Is that the case with any of you here this morning? Are you almost persuaded that you should come to Christ? Are you almost persuaded that you're a sinner in need of Christ? How long halt you between two opinions? The time for halting is past, and the time for salvation is now. And so I close with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Oh, it is not time to halt between two opinions. It is time now to come to Christ, to affirm the truth of who he is and what he's done and how you need him. May God give you grace to overcome a divided heart and come to Christ today if you've never done so. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. And as we're bowed in prayer just now and bringing our meeting to a close, I'd invite you right where you sit to go to Christ. You're halting between two opinions. Is this true or is it not? I think you know that it is true. And halting between two opinions becomes inexcusable. Oh, may you be compelled to come. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the truth of thy word. We thank thee for the truth of thy son. We thank thee for who Christ is and for what he's done. We thank thee, Lord, that though the world scoff, Yet by thy grace we are enabled to affirm the truth that Jesus Christ is God, that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose, and that he's coming again. O oh Lord, if there be any in the sound of my voice, whether it be here in this sanctuary or over the webcast, I pray that thou wilt compel those who halt between two opinions to come clean and land on the side of truth and fix their souls to it and call upon Christ to save them. So, Lord, hear our prayers and may thy spirit continue to speak even after the voice of man is silent. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.